0: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to bluenile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's bluenile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. bluenile.com.
1: A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot maybe your
2: new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term
0: medical plans are available for these changing times.
2: and welcome to Everything is Fine. We are your hosts. I'm Kim France.
1: And I'm Jen Romolini. And Jen, I'm still in Philly. I'm still <laughs> in Philly. Wait, just without without break? Just Philly Philly the whole time or did you go home? No, it's been Philly the whole time. We're going <laughs> home tonight. <laughs> oh my God. That's a lot of Philly. That is a lot of Philly. Um, we just got off an hour-long conversation that I think kind of broke us both. <laughs> in a good way
2: but yes it did it did our guest amanda clayman um who is a financial expert slash therapist
1: yeah she's a financial wellness advisor and therapist
2: it was like two it's like a reese's peanut butter cup like peanut butter and chocolate you know it was like two things that you would not think to put together that when you put together create a powerful whole
1: Totally, I thought that too, and um, but also what as when we hung up the phone because we kept and and every listeners are going to hear this. We had many, many, very specific, very like you know prescriptive, like give us the answers to this questions, and we're going to have to do a follow up with Amanda, and also at some point I think a, um, a a whole episode on retirement because the we did a call for questions and the questions were insane. There were so 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 many, um, yeah. but. Uh, so we're going to do a follow up, but the, the interesting thing that she said I thought was that that we want this stuff to be simple, and it's actually not simple. Like it's it's right. it's more emotionally complicated than that. But anyway,
2: yeah, no, really interesting conversation. You know, hard to have because it's so hard to talk about money, and it's so hard to think about money, and we have so much shame associated with our attitudes around money.
1: This shame, and yeah, and just feelings of just like inadequacy and you know in all ways like uh, I, I often feel stupid you know it's just it brings up so 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 much so just just listeners just so you know consider this a starter conversation a starter conversation about money yeah that's fair should we get into it let's let's get into the episode our guest today is Amanda Clayman. Amanda is a writer, podcaster, and most of all, a financial therapist widely recognized as a pioneer in cognitive behavioral therapy-based financial counseling. Amanda is the author of several financial wellness courses with LinkedIn and the financial wellness expert for She Knows Media, where she writes a financial therapy advice column amanda's work has been featured in cnbc the new york times the wall street journal real simple Forbes, and many others her approach as a clinician is decoding how thoughts feelings and associations shape our financial choices and identify how those patterns both serve and limit us which makes her for me literally a dream guest welcome amanda thank you so much for being here hi Hi, Jen. Hi, Kim. Thank you for having me. I think you're going to solve all of my problems in the next 45 (laughs) minutes, so I'm very excited. Um, Okay, so the first line on your website reads, in all caps, Today I'm a clinician specializing in money issues, but that's only because several years ago I blew up my own financial life so spectacularly that it propelled me in a whole new career direction. I am intrigued by this. Let's discuss.
0: <laughs> yes. I I like to also say that a different way which is that I hope that the bridges that I have burned light the way
2: for others. <laughs> yes, always. Yes.
0: So
1: tell me what happened.
0: You know, looking back it's funny. My my experience of that time of my life was that it was complete chaos and um, that there were all of these financial things that were going on. In in retrospect, though, I have kind of a, a different perspective on that. Obviously, um, but to begin with, I I was a person with a dream. You know, I was 22 years old. I graduated from college, and without a more firm plan, I decided to just relocate myself to New York. What I didn't do was financially prepare myself for that event. Um, so. By simply, you know, entering the island of Manhattan, I discovered that I needed to have several thousand dollars in the bank for things like a security deposit for an apartment, um, broker's fees, which yeah. were, you know, a, a very big deal in those days and have since been the target of some legislation. Um but what I did was I wrote myself, uh, those convenience checks that come with your credit card statement. You know, sometimes they have those, those oh checks. Oh my God. Them. Yes. <laughs> yes. And so I literally, um, wrote myself these checks, deposited them in my bank, which, By the way, I didn't even know that, you know, there are several rules against that, but like that was kind of my means to an end to be able to accomplish sort of what I needed to do, which was to, to land myself in New York city. But it started me out, uh, in the beginning of my career, I did, I found a job, I landed on my feet. Things started to kind of like even out except for I had this obligation now in the form of some credit card debt, which started to just climb bit by bit, chunk by chunk, um, until it was around $20,000, which is not a, a huge amount of debt. Of course, this was in like 90s dollars. So I think that that right. adjusted for inflation, we're looking at about a $35,000 equivalent these days. Right. So it wasn't so much that the the Financial event itself was so destabilizing. It was that my reaction to this particular challenge was was very much informed by the financial trauma that I had been through earlier in my life, and kind of my my own parents' um, legacy of growing up in poverty and all of the the kind of like emotional baggage that they had to to yeah. their financial life. So I became incredibly avoidant uh, about my finances. I could not bear. To open up my statements. Um, I would do all kinds of impulsive things. Like, like if I did force myself to open up these credit card statements, I would look at how much money was in my bank account and I would send as much money as I could to the creditor, of course, leaving myself without enough money to then cover the other parts of my regular financial life. Right. So I would grab a credit card. And, or, so like it was this whole vicious cycle and I had absolutely no idea how to get myself out of it. And the problem with that is that, you know, if we think of these as like parallel tracks, like I I had a lot of things that were going right in my life. I was establishing myself in a career. I was learning about myself as a romantic partner. Um, I was discovering sort of like who I wanted to be in the world. But I had this secret shame. Yeah. Which was that I felt like I was terrible with money. And I felt like this secret shame really undermined, if not totally wiped out any feelings of competence and self-esteem yes. that I had from the other things in my life that were going well. Um, and so these things, there was so much dissonance around that. And I just really didn't kind of know how to to put together this vision of myself that that acknowledged that I I could have all of these strengths, but that money was really a, an area where kind of like my demons came out to play
2: yes yes, so so, so how did you how did you get out of that? How did you find your way out? There was a beautiful
0: crisis <laughs> that came uh, when my mom came to visit me, and when I was little, my mom used to cut my hair um and I asked her on this trip to uh, if she could give me a haircut, and she gave me such a profoundly bad haircut. Wait, how old
1: old were you at this point?
0: I was like 26. Like I was, I was not the little child with, you know, my mom perfected the early eighties bowl cut. Um, (laughs) but I don't know that her skills were continually developed since then, shall we say. Um, it was choppy it was a mess i saw my hair and for me that was the straw that broke the camel's back yeah. uh, because i just i crumbled and and my mom's response was we will call your hairdresser we'll tell her it's an emergency i'm sure she'll see you and that's where i couldn't keep the secret anymore because i had to tell my mom that i had bounced a check like this was again back in the days where you could write a check at yeah. your hairdresser i had bounced a check i couldn't go back i couldn't get my hair done so and and my life was just kind of a a conglomeration of these landmines yeah. it felt like. So in telling the truth to my mother which had been sort of like the secret that I I just really didn't want anybody to know but in exposing it to my mom I finally admitted that I really I really needed help. Like it was a classic kind of hitting bottom yeah. story. My life had become unmanageable. I right. did not have it together and I needed to let somebody know about that. And that person was my mother. And in fact, I, I really, I expected so many things in response from her. Um, what I didn't expect was, was compassion and some constructive help. Um, so that was such a relief that I, I was able to have a positive kind of outcome to that experience. I know a lot of people like they may not their predictions about people's uh reactions to their struggles uh, may not be that positive but i was very lucky in in my circumstances that that was a really helpful uh moment for reparenting between my mother and i
2: yeah can can we talk about the avoidance? You know, it feels like that, you know, being avoidant can be can be such a powerful powerful thing when you know what you should be doing and you just can't stop being avoidant about it. Yes. How how would you advise people to get over that? How do you, you know, is it taking small, you know, small easy to manage steps first? What is it? Yeah. Well, that's the great thing is that the thing that I have struggled with personally
0: is kind of what I have now put myself in the way of, uh, to re-experience a million times over because that is what the universe brings me, mm-hmm. uh, for clients. My clients are avoidant people. We, we experience, um, a, what can feel like an insurmountable emotional reaction, uh, a really negative emotional reaction to the prospect of, of kind of like engaging with money. So what I do is there are a couple of different ways that we can approach that. And this is the thing that I really love about financial therapy is that we're talking about money. Yes. But we're also talking about kind of like how we do things, how we relate to ourselves, how we self-regulate, et cetera. Um, so we can kind of either look at how to structure the money task, or we can look at kind of how to reframe that, the meaning of this event and experience for ourselves. And, and sometimes we experience a shift because of that reframing. And I'll give you an example. Um, so let's say that a person is kind of in that that ground zero moment like I was um, back in my twenties, I might say to a person in those circumstances, there are a couple of different ways that we can approach this. Number one is I want to know a lot more about the meaning. Like, what is this? Tell me the story of what's happening here. And, And that gives us a sense of like, what what significance does this have in a person's life? Like, how are they relating to this problem? Do, how do they assess their own agency in this problem? How does this uh, problem reflect on, on their sense of themselves and their identity, et cetera? So we can go into almost like a kind of like traditional, like psychodynamic, like, like let's really explore the roots of this mm-hmm. reaction. Or we can look at it, much more structurally we can say like what is the routine that you have with money oh you don't have a routine kel surprise um because when we are avoidant that's the first thing that goes out the window so so we can say like you know is there a way that we can really start to like break down and do a a bit of exposure technique and see if that's able to, to help you learn how to self-regulate as you're kind of exposing yourself to the stressor. So we might play with the task a little bit. For example, like one thing that I, I do with people in the beginning of this process is we work on just having a sense of like, um, trust, with ourselves and feel like we can be reliable to ourselves and showing up for our goals and obligations. So like, let's plan a time that you are going to open up this thing called money. And we, we go through the tasks and, and, you know, there's a plan for what to do. So it's not like you just sit down and sort of like allow the feelings to kind of like, flood into that empty space we can give transitions to that activity which allow us again to settle we're working with our nervous system and another thing that i do is i put an end time on that so it's it's not just that you can get yourself to sit down but we have to make that activity safe for people to be in and one of the ways that we make it safer is that we give it a boundary so we say you're going to do money for 30 minutes and then at the end of the 30 minutes we're going to put this away. We're going to transition out of that activity and back into normal life. So, in that sense, we are literally retraining the body around these financial tasks to learn how to simply self-regulate and kind of work with like the way that when we are stressed out, our body and brain is dominated by our limbic response, our fight, flight or freeze response. Yeah, yeah. And when that is happening, our prefrontal cortex is completely offline. Yeah. So like we are trying to put ourselves in a chair to do money tasks and the part of our brain that needs to be in charge of those money tasks has not even caught up with what's happening yet. So there's, you'll see like there's, there's the thing about financial therapy is like we can find different places in this dynamic to engage,
2: yeah.
0: um, depending on sort of how it's presenting with the person or simply uh, depending on like, you know, we treat this as an experiment. Like let's try some stuff. Let's start over here. Let's see what happens. Let's gather information because that's another one of the things that we are learning how to do in a more
1: healthy way as we're engaging in financial wellness work. I want to talk about shame, right? Like one of the things that I've started to come to with my own finances, which are, I'm 50 years old and full disclosure, they've been a fucking disaster my whole life. And I have felt dumb with money and I felt very ashamed of that, everything you're saying. But one of the things is that so much of this is so deep. And I know we're going to get into like concrete things in a minute, but so much of this is so deep. And one revelation I had recently was to think about taking care of my money, would be to take care of myself and to think I deserve to be cared for and take. And I, I wonder if that's a, those kinds of connections come up with your clients because that was a revelation for me. I was like, oh, it's that I don't think that I deserve to be treated well. So of course, I'm not treating my money well. Does that mm-hmm. does that make sense as a as a as a idea? I want to talk about shame, basically shame and money.
0: Yeah, shame. Shame is such a tricky tricky thing because um, I almost think that it's like, you know, when you do a new exercise and it engages like some small muscle that you don't use a lot and you don't realize that that small muscle is really getting activated and trying to do too much in this exercise yeah and then it hurts. I feel like that's shame because shame has this evolutionary purpose which is to make sure that we don't do anything that's going to get us kicked out of our tribe where we would die in isolation. Like that was the biological and social reality for our ancestors for all of these millennia. Shame is what keeps us together. Shame also feels so terrible that it is one of the most motivating psychological states that we can experience. It is meant to feel bad because, again, for our the consequences for our ancestors were life or death. But shame in this sort of modern context is like that little muscle that's trying to do a lot of lifting. And when it comes to money, one of the first places where, where shame sort of gets pulled into this dynamic is because shame tells us, oh, this thing that I want or this thing that I'm doing has consequences social consequences for me in that it might expose me to judgment. It might be a threat to the connection that I have with another person. And I'm going to come back to that specifically in a second. Or this could be something about that's revealing some dissonance around like our, a cohesive sense of identity. So like, like I was experiencing in, in my story earlier, like here are these places in my life where I'm giving myself a passing grade, but over here is something where I feel like I'm a terrible person because that's the power of the shame message.
2: Right. You know, what aspects of that shame, if any, are distinctly female? What, what characteristics does the shame take on in women that it might not take on in men? So there are a couple. And, and, and I do think that like because
0: women are often socialized to A, be much more aware of their feeling states. You know, we, we experience that as opposed to necessarily like uh, cutting ourselves off from it, but also there, there's a lot of research that suggests that just women are kind of much more sensitive to anything related to interpersonal connection. And remember, shame is all about hey, you are doing something that's going to make you get kicked out, rejected, isolated, and possibly die. So we're experiencing and holding a lot of these, these dilemmas around shame. And especially like Jen was saying a minute ago, like how this shame kind of comes into our life and, and sets up camp here in our sense of, of how we relate to ourselves and kind right. of judge ourselves here. So for example, like we don't necessarily even notice the process by which this happens, but one very common way that I see is, is around like how our needs or wants were treated in our family of origin. Mm -hmm. For example, there is a real difference between like, if you said like, Jen, what is something that you wanted as a kid? Do you remember anything specific? Barbies. Very topical. (laughs) Um, (laughs) <laughs> so there's a difference between parent I want a Barbie and that parent saying like how could you want a Barbie you have 5 other Barbies it's ungrateful for you to want another more another one or why do you think we have money for Barbies that's such a waste of money all of these things so it it's it's a pushback specifically related to the the want there's something ro- your want, your desire yeah. for this Barbie is the problem because that want right. in and of itself right. is somehow selfish or wrong or it comes from a place that has been invalidated now by that parent versus right. a response that would be more neutral, which is that Barbie does not fit into our budget right now or we are putting right. our money toward these other priorities Or or even like in a constructive way, like, oh, you want that Barbie? Let's you and I sit down and come up with a plan for how you might be able to like organize your own efforts around like this is how much a Barbie costs. There, so we see like there's a spectrum of ways that a parent can respond. How and to what particular piece of that request they're responding to really affects how we relate to our own needs. And some of us who have very powerful parents whose feelings were much more important than ours in the family. And for some of us, again, highly attuned, highly sensitive people who kind of learn at a very early age how to intuitively manage that parent's moods. Yeah. That is going to set the stage for the, the development of this process whereby we start to relate to our own needs as somehow dangerous. Mm. So we're like, I can't even feel this need because I know that this feeling might cause me to be in conflict with this powerful person or person that I care about. Mm. This need um, or this desire is something like something that's dirty or wrong about me that I don't want anybody to know. Um, And these are the kind of things that are often really unconscious and, and get surfaced through experiences with our money where we're kind of going like, hey, this doesn't add up. Like, why am I tying myself up in knots about something that, you know, should be a a relatively simple matter of do I have the money for it or not? Instead, it's like a whole psychodrama about who I am as a person. Right. Right.
2: So moving on from that, from the family of origin to like life partners, why is it, why is it so hard to talk about money in couples and what do people bring to that dynamic?
1: I mean, I guess it just, any number of things. Mm -hmm. It's just such a mess. It's just, I mean, and we'll get to some listener questions about this, but it's just, and I know you've done some like couples counseling, financial couples counseling. So like, what okay so but what's what's our specific question here like no, the question is what what you know what
2: dynamics enter into it when you're talking about a relationship with a with a life partner when you're talking about combining their michigas with your michigas to come together and create some hopefully not crazy reality yes
0: well there are a couple of things um number 1 is that what we experience in our own family growing up, in many cases, is our our template for normal. Oh. Or even if we kind of know that it's not normal, it's still kind of our reference point. So we're either probably, you know, um, Freud had a paper called "Remembering, Repeating, and Working Through." So we we like we pull up this kind of dynamic in our life, either because it worked and we want to repeat it or because it didn't work, and we wanna repeat it with a different result. So it's mm-hmm. like, I'm gonna do the opposite of this, for example. So we have people who are are responding to their family of origin programming, and we've got two different families of origin, obviously, that are, are coming in. In my marriage, for example, like I come from a family where my mom did absolutely everything, and my husband comes from a family where his dad did absolutely everything and the two of us landed in a marriage together both going get the hell out of my territory when it came to like who was going to be in charge of this of the area. money yes of our lives
1: so what how so what are some things what are some tips around that like that is a question like i there's there's a question in here from a listener like mm-hmm. i want to re- i want to save for my retirement my husband is totally disinterested do I do all the saving for him? Like what are just the sort of like top line tips of like dealing with your partner about money? Well, first of all, you have to be engaged. Like I think that a lot of
0: people, one of their, their first strategies to reduce conflict is just to kind of like move to separate corners, neutral corners. Yep. So it becomes like, I'll do this, you do this, then we don't have to talk about it. Yep. You know, like we'll just split it 50-50 or whatever the arrangement, we, we set it and forget it and then we don't talk to each other.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That can work. It, it can be a stable arrangement um, as long as nothing is really changing. And if there's a, a degree of equality and the financial circumstances, you know, we can sort of set that over here. If it's more complex, if there, there isn't really, if there isn't an appetite or opportunity for neutral corners, what happens is that we're kind of like in this mess together. And I like to think of it as instead of a mess, let's just say it is, it's a complex situation that is hard to navigate intuitively.
2: Mm -hmm. because
0: of that complexity. So what a couple needs is a container, a way to be able to engage with each other. And, And this is the work we do is kind of like setting the expectations for like what that engagement is going to look like, how often it's going to happen. Are there rules for how we communicate or strategies, et cetera. So we're, we're sort of building that container Mm-hmm. such that people are able to have interactions with each other where they can kind of go through a series of steps a process of inquiry and discovery mm-hmm. if you will that may still bring up some some tough feelings but similar to the work with with individuals what we're kind of practicing is how do we move past avoidance or move past these these kind of like um connection ending breakdowns yeah in order to step up open up this thing called money, engage in it, gather information, assess what's important, like do all of these tasks Mm -hmm. in that engagement. And then we, we learn how to sort of close that money box and be able to step back from it.
1: So it doesn't infiltrate every part of our relationship. So it's not like hanging over us, you know, in in dinner and sex and everything else. It's not, it's not everywhere, which is, I feel like it, it can be.
0: We need a time to do money so that we can have a time to not do money.
1: Yeah.
2: Otherwise, it's always there.
1: Yeah, exactly. Let's take a quick break from some ads. And we're back. We're going to get into some listener questions. Okay. Um. How do you get over the shame of not planning financially earlier in life or not being more financially stable in your 50s? What's more important to you to recommend someone now in 2023 if all the basics are covered, but not much more than that? I feel like this is a big question of like, well, I just didn't fucking think about it for 50 years. Hold
2: up. One size fits all seems like a good idea for
0: clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn
2: more at uh1.com.
1: Support for Everything is Fine comes from ritual. So I love ritual. Everyone knows I love ritual. I talk about ritual all the time. I particularly love its daily, their daily multivitamin, and I also really have been enjoying their melatonin. But the thing I love most about Ritual is their Hyacera. It's a once-daily skin supplement that's clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. In a clinical study, Hyacera led to 3.6 times reduction in crow's feet wrinkles within 90 days as compared to a placebo. Hyacera led to 2.9 times increase in skin smoothness within 90 days as compared to a placebo. You can enhance your skincare routine from the inside out with one daily capsule essenced with soothing vanilla. I love Hyacera. It's been rigorously tested and validated. It's one of the industry-leading sustainability. It it meets, sorry, all of the industry-leading sustainability standards. You know I'm a beauty editor now. I am all about keeping my face plump, and Hyacera absolutely has done that for me. I've been on it for months. I don't even know how long, and I can really see a difference in the texture of my skin. My skin looks more juicy, I guess, is the best way to do it. Say it. Do it.
0: and here I am. Yes, absolutely. In that question, we have kind of like the, how do I get over the shame, right? The shame. So, so implied in that is that this shame overpowers me. This shame makes it impossible for me to operate in a functional way when I'm kind of in the throes of it. And one of our ways to, to start to, I guess, like, have a little bit more of a, a friendly detente, if you will, with (laughs) our shame is that we do have to listen to it. We have to be able to, to at some point, like stop running away from that. So stop being in the avoidance and to really say like, what does it mean for me to talk to myself this way. Um, we can build a process of like reality testing kind of what, what the shame is saying. Mm -hmm. So like, I will often ask people like, is there a thought attached to that feeling? Mm -hmm. What is the thought saying? And we can reframe some of these, these shame messages. So like, you know,
2: give me an example of a shame message. Um, I'm God, Kim, you go. (laughs) I mean, I'm, I'm behind in paying my bills. I'm bad and unworthwhile. Yes.
0: So we could could reframe that as like, I am having a a scary thought that I'm not going to be able to pay my bills. Because right now we don't know, like at this point in the process of inquiry, we don't know if you can pay your bills or not. So it starts with just reframing it from a statement of fact to a statement of kind of subjective experience. I am having a scary thought that I can't pay my bills. I am having a scary thought that I am, a a garbage person. Oh yes, because I can't do that. And we we come to these thoughts and then we can set kind of a a way to be able to again engage that feeling and get a little bit deeper than it and say like all right, let me start to do a kind of like reality check mm-hmm. of my money. So one of the first things that we do cuz a lot of this stuff comes from vagueness, I find. Yeah. You know, we don't necessarily have a comprehensive view of what our our problem is or maybe we do have a pretty pretty good idea of what the problem is but we are feeling about that problem is that because there is a problem everything is a problem right so part of that inquiry around the shame is like again scary thought now we're going to reality test it let's see like maybe this part of the financial life is working but maybe there is one bill yeah that we yeah. can't do or maybe there is saving that we never get to. Yeah. So we, we are, are carving out space to do some of that. Like, let me, let me check on uh, what I call knowable facts. Like what are the knowable facts about this situation? And then we can start to move to, from some of these, like, I am a garbage
1: person because of this problem. It's like really, like are, does having a problem. I'm a garbage person because I haven't saved a retirement. And I'm going to yes. be old, right? So right. let's let's reframe that though. So where where are we? If like, what is the tip? Where because this is this question came up again and again. Yeah, I'm 50. I haven't prepared for this. I'm 40. I haven't prepared for this. I'm 55. Whatever the age is, what is the first step? In because clearly we have to get right about retirement, right? Yes. What is like the first thing somebody should do or like the number one tip around this? What I would say is, is to, to think of where this problem, where this pain
0: point lives in the context of the rest of the financial life. Like if you don't have this container, right? Mm-hmm. If you're not doing your cash flow, for example, yeah. on a regular basis, you are not in a position to save because you don't know what you, Wait, what you does
1: so your cash flow mean? Tell me. So <laughs> okay.
0: cash flow, like how how money is coming in and how money is going out. Okay. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So so like knowing cash flow, like when I talk about um, money as a practice or setting up this container, the thing that we're doing, and we can almost think about it like, like a practice, almost like a yoga practice or a meditation practice. Like, you know, what do you do? You come back to the breath. The breath comes in, the breath goes out. That is cash flow. Money comes in, money comes out and when we're sort of situating ourselves in this kind of like this container space yeah getting a sense of our cash flow in and out that's always the place that i have people start okay because thinking about the future will not happen if we're not sure that the needs of today are taken care of so we need to right. create safety and a sense of again being reliable to ourselves right. can i show up and make these decisions so so situating people in their cash flow once we have this regular container of contact with our money and the ability to self-regulate when we're in that space, then we can start to say like, okay, now what are all of my problems? Right. Oh, I have a problem saving for retirement. I have, a, But we're, we're, we're giving ourselves kind of a, a, a needs assessment and a skills assessment when we're right. doing that cash flow and resources assessment to know how to answer some of
1: those big questions. So what are some resources in terms of like good, like resources to, to take this next step? So you're building this container, you're understanding where your cash flow is so that we Mm -hmm. can start thinking about the future. You're sort of lowering your anxiety by getting like very concrete answers and now you need some skills, right? Mm -hmm. So let's go next stage, right? We're, we're tamping down the emotional part of this. Where do we look to find our like money skills. Are what are the what are some good resources that you recommend to your clients for this this kind of a thing? It's funny,
0: I'm really picky about that question, so I would say like you can look to me and you can right. look to my courses and yeah. and all of that. Um and and I feel some frustration around this too because I I feel like there are not there aren't a lot of great resources that are doing doing this holistically. Yeah. And for I and helping people discover what their own kind of intrinsic motivation is around that. Yeah. So I'm afraid I don't have a really good answer for that, because I feel like a lot of it is like almost like in that bro speak of
1: totally like, you gotta have all the money and like yeah. have all the points. And otherwise you're not safe. And and it's like Charlie Brown. It's like Charlie Brown parents like I don't even hear it. You saw I have a friend who like sent me some finance books. I haven't even I like tried to open them. I was like, I'm going blind. I yeah. <laughs> no it's like a language i don't speak. Yeah, it's like a language i don't speak and i know that the avoidance
2: is a huge part of that. It's cultural in that i i feel like money is so
0: absolutely misunderstood and the way that we kind of are the propaganda <laughs> around how to operate money or how to situate ourselves in this financial world is is really not coming out of the the a motivation for human thriving. Mm-hmm. It really is about the the kind of cultural values of capitalism. And I really do think that a lot of the reasons that so many of us do kind of struggle to feel like, like, I don't know, this just doesn't speak to me or it doesn't speak to my problems or it doesn't acknowledge or my full humanity in some way. Like, I feel like we are exposing the cracks of really like how money has kind of been set up to be something that uh i don't know we're we're living in a myth yeah i think about money and yeah. and our global financial system and and so i i feel like this is all a mass kind of like soul searching yeah. for all of the people who feel left out of the current narrative and the current advice i think we what i dream of is that we create this groundswell that says what is money well it ain't that Can we come up with something healthier, more sustainable? And again, that's defined by human thriving as opposed to just like how to survive in this vastly hyper-competitive world that is a global market.
2: Can I ask about, we have a question from a reader, I mean, a listener. Um, This keeps me up at night ever since I read that on average, a woman will hit her peak salary at 40, knowing that and that ageism in the workplace can knock you out sooner than you might want. How do you adjust your plan to real, realistically account for that?
0: Well, so there are two things. Number one is if that's the reality, then we adjust to it. And we say that the the number answer is you need to really kind of minimize your overhead as much as possible. So like what are kind of your committed expenses, your obligations, the things that you have already decided to put money toward. Um, if we can reduce those, and obviously we create more of our a higher proportion of our money that is discretionary and we can decide what to do with it. You know, if if it is like it's all doom and gloom, then we say, okay, batten down the the hatches. Like get really serious about reducing your overhead and saving as much as you can for the future. I know that the person who is sending in that question already knows that answer. They know that's obvious, right? So if it was as simple as here's kind of an external solution, go do this external solution, that is what we would do. So it's not that we know that there's a subtext to that problem. Oh yeah, which is this reality has to compete with other things that are important to me. So if I was, you know, in dialogue with with this uh, the person who sent in this question, it would be like, where else is your money going? right now or what other constraints are there on your income that's making it harder to bring up your income in the way you know that that you want to fight back on that trajectory that says this is your peak at 40 like that's not individually true that's that's you know the trend but like so there are different places where i might go oh that's interesting like that the the way that that problem is being presented on the surface is not the whole story what do we need to know that's kind of like digs beneath the surface to say more about how this person, because again, I I hear the pain point in that. I'm having a scary thought that I'm yes. not going to be prepared about the future. I am having a scary thought that as hard as I'm working right now, it actually just still goes downhill
1: from here. Right. You get me? Yeah, I do. And I I, I, I think yeah. what's so interesting about what you're saying is because we are we're trying to make you give us practical advice and tips and and you know, here are the golden rules of money. And the truth is any of us right now could go and look those money rules up. They're pretty easy. It's it's one plus one equals two. And why don't we? And it's because of all of these emotions. And if we don't get right with our emotional relationship with money, we're not going to save that million dollars or whatever the fuck we need for retirement. I honestly don't know. I've like, that calculator is terrifying to me. I, I, and I again, because it's all of this, this emotional stuff. And here's another question because so many of these questions were framed in a, an emotional way. Mm -hmm. what advice do you have for a parent who is behind in saving for their kids college tuition? My kid is 10 and I feel horrible that I have not gotten it together, but I've been keeping, I've been busy keeping a roof over his head in New York. I really don't want to let this keep overwhelming me. This comes up a lot. How do I save for, you know, my kids tuition and retirement at the same time, this feels like an impossible puzzle. What would you say to this person?
0: Yes. So this is where it's so important. This is why we need the container, right? Because this is a person who, who, if we were to kind of like plot out the the different points in this question, is dealing with high overhead, high cost of living, right? So we have the the kind of like, that's the committed expense, right? Like, here we are, we live here, we have a mortgage, or we have a lease, like, right. we have the legacy of a life. Right now. Right. And and the financial commitment of those choices costs X dollars regularly. We also have this other goal that lives out here. And that and I'm talking now about the the goal for saving for um the future, my son. That does not seem, it doesn't seem like there's enough room after the kind of like immediate needs. And those immediate committed expenses are are taken care of to be able to save for the future. And this is creating a fear in the person around that sense of I'm I'm doing okay now, relatively, you know, like like I'm I'm focused on the present and the present is okay. It's the future that scares me to death.
1: Right.
0: How do we live that pain point? right? Like, is this a sense of just like, we carry a lot of fears for our children that about a scary world that we are not able to fully protect our children from all of the different uh, challenges or dangers that they might face. And that's the reality. And sometimes we just need to like, you know, it feels hard because it is hard. And there's, it doesn't mean that it's dysfunctional or unhealthy. Like that is a, we have a broad range of, of emotions That correspond to you know the experiences that we have as as human beings, Um, so it could be you know to to really first of all validate the challenge of trying to balance high cost of living, keeping the lights on, and and taking care of a child in New York City. That is a hard task in and of itself, but it's not our only task. And isn't it painful when we have more tasks? and more challenges than we necessarily have the power to be able to satisfy those. Yeah. So some of that is just like, this is going to feel bad, but I don't need to react to this feel. I don't need to pathologize this feeling because it is related to the reality that I'm experiencing. And instead I want to have self-compassion for that. I want to feel like it hurts to be a parent and to want to provide a clear path for your child and to not feel like we have that power. That is the emotional reality. How do we how do we be kinder to ourselves in that emotional reality?
2: It's so funny, this conversation, like half of me while we're having this conversation wants to run screaming from the room yeah. and never come back. And then the other half of me wants to curl up in your lap i tell you all of my problems yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because it's so like, I can feel it in my stomach. I can feel and my, my financial life is not a disaster, but there are a couple of sticking points I would say. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'm highly avoidant and, and it's, it's just, it's, it's just so intense, but I was thinking about something. Um, What would you say to someone who always assumed that they would have a partner to work on all of this with and either chose not to have a partner or just didn't find a partner and is now approaching all of this on their own? We had a question from a listener who was in her 40s and said, you know, there are more of us who are single now. Is there what should what should we be doing?
0: That's a wonderful question. And and it leaves a lot of um, space, I think, for creative uh, solution finding. So first of all, there's, there's like, what's the pain point? What's the kind of like emotional reality? And the emotional reality of that is disappointment. I had a plan A. I was expecting a certain degree of, of partnership and help, you know, in the form of like another person who could make this contribution, maybe even bring in some skills, you know, have a skill set that I don't have. So we're going to feel disappointed that, that we had an idea that our efforts would be supported and shared with another person and that has not happened and that's going to feel shitty. Yeah. So first we have we have compassion for ourselves for that experience. And then if once we can can come to that that love place for ourselves like yeah of course that was my my wish or my expectation um and it hasn't happened so so where am i? Like how do i start to think about this? Um, in terms of what I need, and doing that kind of like needs assessment, resource assessment, and then I see like, and the more we we can do this in a in a healthy way, in a, a self compassionate way, the less likely we are to hide and withdraw in shame and avoidance from being able to think more creatively. Like you said, you know, there are so many women in this this boat. I'm seeing wonderful things about like women setting up like golden girls. Like I'm going to get a house with my girlfriends yeah, and we're going to be right. like, we are not beholden. Newsflash. I am super psyched about this, but we are not beholden to the old structures of the patriarchy yeah. anymore. We can. And I, I really want people to step outside of, of the idea that help is going to come always in the form of a partner here cuz like the institution of marriage and partnership is is really kind of like it's it's i think challenged to to show how it can adapt to the current circumstances <laughs> so like where we don't have that what i would say is let's find other ways to a connect around the truth of where we are so it begins with just kind of like here's the boat that i'm in i wonder if other people are in the same boat be like, Hey, what other things could be helpful here? Is it, is it co-living? Is it starting like just a, a like zoom monthly, like hangout with your friends where you're just opening bills, you know, like where you're opening bills and you're, you're paying them. And so you, you can create community around some of these, these events to, to help feel supported, um, to help celebrate your wins. You know, like we, we can think of what, what the components of what we might get from that romantic partnership and say, are there other places maybe in this world where I could find some of these things for myself? Yeah. Um, but yeah, one of the first, uh organizations that I stumbled, because I've been doing this for a long time, kind of pre-internet in some ways, um, definitely pre-social media. One of the first organizations that I found was this place called uh wife.org, which was the Women's Institute for Financial Education. And wife.org, their their slogan was a man is not a financial
1: plan. <laughs> it was like, oh, hallelujah. <laughs> Thank you for
0: right.
2: that. <laughs>
1: Um, on that, are there organizations specifically geared towards women and investing that you would recommend? If there are places like specifically for women, especially at this age where we're like, oh shit, I want to do some catching up here, et cetera? The only one that's that's
0: popping to mind is Ellevest. Mm-hmm. I, I think Ellevest and and others like it are doing great things. Number one is they're putting a flag on the ground and saying women gather here, yeah. let's, you know, here's a a repository of information and resources and support, et cetera. But whatever it is, the, the key is, where do you feel like you are in a group of people who have your back, who experience a similar um, kind of challenges to you and have a, a culture around how to meet those challenges and rise to those challenges that speaks to you? Because the number one thing that's going to help people is not necessarily the quality of the information. Because like you said earlier, Jen, like it's not rocket science to make the money balance. The hardest part is the human part. So if this is something that's going to keep you coming back, that's going to help you feel like you are your best self, not a perfect self, but that you can be a, the best version of yourself as you engage in money and anything that, again helps keep you kind of like butt in chair, looking at this stuff on a regular basis, that that regular contact with money is the thing that's going to, I think, solve 80% right there of the problems that we have in yeah. our own financial lives. exposure. Yeah. Do
1: you recommend people get financial advisors? It feels like that can be like, so scammy. And then they're selling you insurance. And let me tell you something. I have like 40 different kinds of insurance, but like barely a 401k, like, because I've been with financial advisors who were like, Oh, more insurance. But uh, do you recommend like that? Not if anybody's a financial advisor, I'm sure you're awesome. That's just my experience. But is there, how, how is, do you recommend financial advisors is my question. I think financial advisors can be incredibly helpful
0: um, in terms of providing analysis um, for modeling things. So there are often questions that you might say, like, I'm thinking of changing careers. Um, It would mean I'm going to be out of the workforce for two years while I get this other credential. Uh, It means like this is kind of where my my income would probably be. Can you come up with a model for what that's going to look like for me long term? I'm not able to do that. A yeah. financial advisor would be able to, I think, provide that kind of context and analysis as well as be able, um, again, there are different kinds of advisors out there, right? Um, what, but wait, what, what are they? What are they? What? How do you find one? You can look at like the the initials after somebody's name. Mm-hmm. Um, so for example, like a CFP is a certified financial planner. Okay. They have like a fiduciary responsibility, for example. Okay. So what that means is that, they have to recommend things that are best for you without that fiduciary, uh, level of, of responsibility, the standard is suitable for you. So there are advisors like, uh, uh somebody that is an investment advisor, like an RIA registered investment advisor, or has some other kind of like, uh, Somebody might just have a, you know, like an MBA, but not mm-hmm. necessarily be through a financial planning program, but they would only have to recommend a, uh, products that are suitable for you. Okay. So that could mean like that person gets a commission from selling you that insurance yes. product, which may not be the best thing for you. But if it's not a bad thing for you, that still meets the threshold of suitability.
1: Okay. So you're looking for you're looking for those you're looking for certified financial advisor. That is going to give you the most comprehensive, I think, consumer
0: protected kind of um, advice. There, there's just there's so much training. um, There's a lot of ethical oversight Mm -hmm. in the CFP world, but it's also generally like you will see you will see advisors who um, that's where they're taking a percentage of assets under management potentially Mm -hmm. as the way Mm -hmm. that they get paid, which may not be like, you might not be looking for somebody to manage a portfolio for you. Right, right. You might just be looking for somebody who is able to give you the kind of analysis, maybe do a little portfolio review and rebalancing with you
1: once a year. But how do you find these people? I feel like it's like my mother-in-law's like nephew's cousin. And like, that's how I feel like nobody knows how to find these people. How do you find like a good one?
0: That's the great question, because most of us are not educated on on the details of sort of what these different certifications mean. So so there is I think we we need to to give ourselves a little bit of an assignment to begin with, which is like to educate ourselves on what the different options are when it comes to advice. Um, But also to really, really start. And this is the place that we often overlook. We think if we find the best person. Mm-hmm. We will fit that good person, right? That competent person, that right. that expert advisor. <laughs> We're not doing like, what? who am I? Who do I want to work with? Um, what kind of support do I need in order to have my financial life work best? Because we we want a rescuer, right? Yeah. Ultimately, we want to skip over the part where this brings up all of the emotional stuff that gets attached to money. And we want to be able to say like, I'm not able to do that. Let me just hand it off to an expert here. Yeah. So I do actually a lot of work with, with helping people to be empowered within their, their advisor relationship Yeah. Um, so that they're not just setting themselves up for yet another relationship where they feel invisible, yes. where they feel ashamed because yes. they're not able to um, do the things that the advisor is telling them to do. Or where they feel like they have to take care of the advisor and the advisor's kind of expectations for them, as opposed to really staying true to themselves. Um, So in fact, one of I think the the hardest parts about being in, in a really like collaborative partnership with your financial team here is there's no substitution for us feeling like competent. And directive forces in our own financial life. Financial advisors work best when you give them
2: direction. Right. We're we're gonna have to have you back on because <laughs> we have so many more questions, and this has been so helpful, Amanda.
1: Yeah, seriously. I mean, I we didn't even get into like all the four. I mean, I guess we're I guess what we're saying is that in order to get into any of these specifics. We need to first process our anxiety, our shame, our avoidance because. Without it, it's just the cycle is just going to repeat itself over and over and over again. And we're not actually going to be finding real solutions. Because even what you were saying, like, I feel like I'm in total fawn mode with my financial advisor. Mm -hmm. I just want – I want to be liked so much. I want to be good. Mm -hmm. I cry half the times when we meet with the – like, (laughs) I could cry in this this conversation, Amanda. This conversation Mm -hmm. has made me so like "Ah." (laughs) – I know. And that
0: honestly, like that should not be anathema to financial conversations. Like that is the patriarchy telling us that the answer is to feel less here, as opposed to absolutely not. Let's not fear what our emotions have to tell us about this situation. Let's have a more neutral way. Of observing our emotions, of trying to assess what those emotions are telling us in this moment, and then coming back to that place of of uh, compassionate self acceptance, um, and saying things like like I hurt, I hurt, I hurt, and and acknowledging the feeling that's in the room with us before we get into the whole performance of how am I going to manage. My way out of this hurt, but to make sure that that we are in in alignment with ourselves when we're going into these engagements with money.
1: Yeah, whether it's yeah, the, whether it's with whether it's with a partner, whether it's with a financial advisor, whether whatever it is, and then I think the other takeaway from this conversation is having a what you said was a container where we have a certain we set up some rules about how we think about talking about money, how we're, we're, the cadence for with which we deal with it, like it's once a week, this is, it's contained here so that it's not bleeding everywhere, all over everything and like kind of ruining our lives from the anxiety because the reality of the situation is the reality of the situation. There's money coming in, it has to go in these kinds of places, whether it's that committed foundational um, needs or it's you know the wants and desires or it's planning for the future those numbers are what they are but it's what we're bringing to it is what you're saying that's really kind of fucking us up
0: yeah and but if i i can leave us on a maybe a, a more positive <laughs> view of that which is that all of our feelings are here for a reason they all have a purpose and a function and as a way to to really be grounded in our lives. This is what I love about the practice of money really is like, I feel like money is where our inside self meets the outside world. And as we kind of have more conscious and more reliable um, engagements with money, that's where I feel like we, we learn how to move through those emotions that hurt and come to a place where first of all, we start to go, wow, I can survive this hurt. I don't have to hide from it the way that I was before. This hurt is, is, you know, I've seen how, how the hurt can kind of pass through me. And then we start to discover all of these other sort of more sometimes delightful parts of money. Like money can be incredibly transformative In addressing some of those like cutoff pieces, like the wants that we were talking about earlier, one of the most powerful things for me in that I experienced immediately post crisis early in my 20s was that actually when I had my money in balance and I put money towards something for me, I knew that that was safe for me to take care of myself, to use money in that particular way to take care of myself. So once we say like, I am deciding to put this money toward this goal for myself or toward this this use for how I take care of myself that's a very empowering place to be. So it's not like we're we're feeling disrupted, we need to spend or do something to make ourselves feel better in that moment. You know, like me just looking at my bank account and sending off that money to the credit card company, rather we are able to look at the full scope of how our money is coming in and going out and start to make choices about that and feel like those choices That we have the power as an agency to stand behind those choices. Absolute game changer. Yeah. Absolute game changer. Yeah.
1: Where can people find you, Amanda? Because we want them to find you, obviously. (laughs) Uh, You can find me at amandaclayman.com
0: and amanda clayman on instagram not doing twitter anymore
1: yeah no no nobody (laughs) is thank you so much for coming on and doing this with us we really appreciate it this was a a very nurturing and informative conversation so thank you for this (laughs) yes good oh it was such a a delight thank you for having me thanks for listening to everything is fine we're your hosts i'm jen romolini and I'm Kim France. If you like the show, please rate and review it across the platforms. It really makes a difference. It helps people find the show. If you want to support the production of the show, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash everything is fine. If you want to follow Kim, you can find Kim on her Substack, kimfrance.substack.com. It's still called Girls of a Certain Age. Technically, if you want to follow us on social media, we're at EIF podcast on Instagram. We have a robust and private Facebook group. The show is mixed and edited by wonderful natalie rivera who we love so much and are so grateful for and we'll be back next week
0: small details are big surfaces tight corners are odd shapes flat rounded textured or tall whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right